This is iUniverse Radio, brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is your opportunity to hear firsthand from authors about their new books. It's an in-depth discussion about the author's passion about the development of his or her story in their own words. It's an inside look into the characters and the plot and how the story all came together. Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. The book is titled A Foggy Sunrise, A True Story. And our author, David Kimmel, joins me from Ontario, Canada. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you very much. Your story is autobiographical in nature and covers primarily the, uh, the time period from 1937 to 1947 in Romania. Share with me and with my listeners what your story focuses on and why you decided to share it. Well, you see, Jay, uh, I immigrated half of the world with two children over here, which were very young. Later, I realized that those children, they are broken from their roots. They know nothing about their family, fathers, grandfathers, and so on. And uh, what I did, I made uh, a family tree at the beginning. Then I was thinking what it will be if I let my life story uh, tell them Tell them who those ancestors were, how they live, and uh, how they look, and things like that. So I started writing the book in my native language, like a blueprint. And later I was trying to translate it in English, because, you see, uh, children... They speak Romanian, but hardly they can read and write in that language. Very, uh, very interesting story. 286 pages, and of course, it covers the time period, period just prior to World War II and into and beyond World War II to some degree. What is the most startling fact that you shared. I know you have uh, highlighted the fact that your father was, was he an inspector in World War or during that time period? Uh, no, my father it was a typograph. He worked uh, in typography. He was uh, he was working to a newspaper and uh, when uh, the the when uh, the legionaries were, uh, when the pro-nationalist government came to power under Octavian Goga, he was let go, and he couldn't find jobs anymore, so he was working now and there and so on. And uh, and uh, then it started because he was a very good typographer with lots of experience. He was actually hired illegally to work for some companies and to what is even uh, uh, most uh, you know most dramatic is the fact that one of those typographies where he worked um, had the most 
secret document. It was printing the most secret documents of the patronage consulate of Romania, which it was under direct supervision of General Ior Antonescu, the chief of the government at that time. And uh, somehow uh, an inspector found out that a Jew was making those uh, was making those those documents. Mm. And uh, it was a nasty story over there, something comic, because the inspector came to inspect, and my father was taken by surprise and asked about his name and so but he says that his name is not Kimel Avram, but Kimel Anton. And uh, then... Uh, when he was asked what is what origin he was, he told he's German and not a Jewish what he was. Mm-hmm. And the inspector just retracted very well, camera, very well. That's all I wanted to know. And they found somebody in the plant, a Romanian, a Romanian who don't have a drop of Jewish blood in his vein, but he looked like a Jewish. He was small. He was dark he was you know one of those typical uh, like carton types of uh, of uh, men and the inspector went to him you are the Jews I'm not sir you are but you don't want to say I'm sorry sir I'm not I swear uh, show me your paper but you see, sir, I don't have them with me. Aha, you lying. Let's go to the police. You're going to say everything there. Only after his wife came with the paper, he was released from the police. But the moral, the moral of this story is that everybody knew and that small typography, typography who the Jew and what happened they didn't say nothing you see it's one of those things where the solidarity where the the human spirit triumph over the policy of the over untrusty government over an ugly government the romanian people uh, suffered a great deal during World War II, and even after the war, under communist dictatorship. You mentioned one scene at Piata Grant where your father was almost lynched. Share that story. No, no, that, it, that it was much later. That it was after, after the war, when the communists took over, and where the shortage was so great, okay, People didn't have anything. It was very hard to to to, to find, you know, uh, some textile to to make a dress. Uh, everything it was, everything it was uh, delivered on tickets. The bread it was on tickets. The food, sugar, oil, anything, even. Even petroleum, which you needed for, you know, to... And uh, and what it was happening, uh, it was 
Fadde, Fadde had his brother-in-law. He was a commerchant in Giorgio. Giorgio is a small province, a small city at the south of Bucharest. And uh, he had a small harder basher uh, uh, shop. And uh, he asked father to buy for him something and give a commissioner to bring him to Giorgio. So father went and uh, bought from him, from a friend which had uh, a warehouse, what he was asking. But nobody came to pick up the package from him. So father put his salary into those merchandises and he got stuck with them so badly that he had no money for bread even. Mm. So in a Sunday morning he took those merchandises and went to the market and put some paper under them and he tried to sell them. And he made a little more money than what he paid on the things he sold over there. And he was very happy about that. And because he, you know, everybody was so poor and money wasn't enough. His salary couldn't cover his needs. Hardly he had money for the rent. Okay? He went back to the same warehouse and asked for more merchandise and some consignation, and the guy was given to him, and he repeated and he was. But one day, because the communists couldn't make the, the couldn't make couldn't couldn't provide more for the people. Okay, they came with the policy and the, the, all the paper, all the communist paper were saying it's because of the speculators that they don't have, we don't, the population doesn't have anything. Because the speculators are stocking the merchandises from the population. And when they got somebody trying to speculate, more than, I don't know, the, what the prices were then. They took them to the streets, they put a plaque on their face, and they lynched them. Ouch. Mm. And then, in one day when my father was with his merchandise on the plaza, trying to sell them, a group of people came over there and wanted to do the same thing to them. But my father was working night at the paper, at the, at the communist paper, and he had his union um, the license with him, with all the stamps paid to the day. And he showed them, hey, listen, guys, I'm one of yours. Mm. This is what I'm doing every night. And he showed the paper. This is what I printed last night. And this is what I'm doing to feed my children. What do you want from me? Where am I, the speculator? And the people retracted. So that is how he got away with that. It's, it's an amazing story. You uh, also, uh, I guess, uh, to some degree, have followed your father. Your father was a printer and uh, a topographer, but you have been a, a uh, writer, a, uh, a publisher, a, uh, in, involved in, in writing articles for newspapers, haven't you? 
I'm doing that only later. Uh, I became a columnist to a Romanian newspaper here in Toronto. It's a Romanian language. The name is Observatorul, which means the observer. I am a, co- a columnist for them for the last five, six years. Uh, you see, I was very busy. My profession is design engineering, and I was working uh, for a big plant here in Toronto, Magna International, who makes automotive parts for General Motor Ford, and you name it. Uh, I worked 20 years for them. When I retired, I started writing more. Yes, it was a passion from young age, and uh, but I couldn't do it through immigration and through hardship and all this and children and uh, it was very hard. But after I retired, I spent more time with that, and I have also another book of poetry which it was printed in two thousand and eight, uh, and that was coming out, you know, again, trying to write some poetry, you know, for different events in the family when my daughter was 17, when my son finished university, when my grandchild came and he has his birthday. And all those little things kept adding. And here I am now today. You can call me an author if you like. But I am... I still feel like at the beginning of the road. You uh, have a, an interesting story and a fascinating history that you have uncovered and shared in your book. As a grandfather, I'm guessing, or at least a father, do you have any concerns about our current situation in the world? Very much so. You know, there are things in my book which I was trying. Let me tell you only this. I remember my father. Very often he would tell us how life it was in Romanian prayer to the Second World. And uh, he was describing the life in 1938 when, uh, you know, in one day, a guy knocked at his door and brought him a brand new suit made specially for him. And my father came listen, but I didn't order. I know, but the master had a very good material and he was thinking of you and he made this suit for you. The master, the, the tailor, had to hold my father's dimension and so and my father told him, listen, but I don't have money to pay for this now. Don't worry about that. You're going to talk with the master. That is not a problem. That it was the life in 1937, 1938 in Romania. It was nice. It was beautiful. And everybody, it was happy. When I came in 1975 in Canada, the stories my father was telling about Canada, it was very similar. It wasn't anymore in Romania, 
but it was very similar in Canada, the trust which you got, the way you've been welcomed every day, the way you've been welcomed in every shop and so on. And it was easy to leave, it was cheap, it was nice, and this little money which I had from my very first jobs in a hotel in maintenance in Toronto, okay? I couldn't make it. It was okay. I could have covered everything and we'd been very happy at the very beginning. Unbelievable. But it's not the same anymore. It's changing. It's changed. Mm. It is, um, it, and it's not changing only in Canada. It was changing everywhere. It bothers me to see now for the second time how things evolve today, following the same steps. Things were changing in Romania uh, after the war, until people were forced to go somewhere else, to find somewhere a better living way. This is why so many Romanians are everywhere, you know, spread in the Occident. And... Um, and uh, it's really very, very uh, bad to see it like a nightmare coming through. And what I'm trying to say is that uh, we must be very careful when some interest group of people and politicians, they are pushing us on the way which are foreign to us. They, they have all kinds of grievances, all kinds of claims, all kinds of pushing, all kinds of demonstrations. We must be very careful about that because otherwise uh, we're going to lose our freedom, our tradition, and uh, our wealth and our way of living, and that is what I am afraid of. I, I am grateful that you have shared that. That's an important observation. Your book is one that uh, is a must-read for those who have an interest or have a curiosity about what happened in World War II, and also a, uh, a probably a warning for maybe our generation. The title is A Foggy Sunrise, A True Story. Our author, David Kimmel, has joined me from near Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Sir, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? Well, first of all, in Canada, chapter Indigo and call um, the shop, the shops. And then anywhere, Amazon, iUniverse, um, um, <laughs> Noble and uh, yes. Uh, yeah, well, they they can the yes, they can do a search online under your name, David Kimmel, K I M E L, and find it. And again, the title is "A Foggy Sunrise: A True Story." David, sir, thank you. I've been honored to visit with you. Thank you for sharing your story. Thank you very much. I appreciate. It. Honored for iUniverse. This is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Congratulations on being the proud owner of an adorable, soft, cuddly, sweet-smelling, smiling, cooing, hungry, tired, gassy, screaming little bundle of joy. 
So now what? Where's the owner's manual for this thing? Where are my instructions? Right here. It's baby and toddler instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Infant care specialist Blythe Lippman has worked with babies for over 20 years and works extensively with new parents providing workshops, in-home visits, tips, and daily phone calls to ease those frazzled nerves. With baby and toddler instructions, you can get the advice you need on how to survive and enjoy your baby's first year. For more information on Blythe and how she can help you, go to babyinstructions.com. From 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more, it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on toginet.com. Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse, this is J. Douglas Barker. The title of the book is My Angel of Angels. And our author, Jim Arnold, joins me from the northeast. Actually, it's the northwest, isn't it? You're up in Washington State in the United States. Thank you, Jim, for joining me today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here today. This is your first novel. It has some uh, provocative uh, photos. Well, not, not provocative in a bad way, but some enticing photos on the cover. But it talks about Manuel Santiago a young man who wonders about the Spanish heritage he gained from his recently deceased father. That sets the stage for your story. Where did the idea come from for My Angel of Angels? It actually came from a boring night. I was just sitting down in front of my computer, and I was playing with the fonts on on my computer, and I wrote a sentence, and I sat back and I looked at it, and I thought, well, that's an interesting statement. What happened next? And I wrote a couple more lines, and I read all three or four of those lines, kicked back, and I thought, what happened next? And before I know it, I had a whole page done. And I just kept asking myself, what happened next? And before I knew it, I had a book done. <laughs> That's remarkable. So it didn't take that long. It just took some discipline uh, sitting down at your computer. That's it, yeah. And how long did it actually take to get the first draft completed? The first draft took maybe... Two or three weeks is all. I mean, I didn't I didn't work on it diligently, and it was just something that I, was, I never thought that I would ever publish. It was just something I wanted to do to pass time. And I actually wrote it back in 2003, and I just tucked it away and never said anything about it until I met until I went to a uh, reunion last last July of 2003, and I sat down with a woman that graduated actually a year behind me and I told her about the book because she mentioned the fact that she does she sells books that have kind of like gone through the gambit and then she brings them back to life mm. and I told her about this book she said send it to me I want to read it and she uh, very gently gave me some tips on what to do with the book so I actually went back and read it myself and the book just went off in different directions so I just started ripping out chapters and rewriting it and uh, I thought well what the heck I might as well publish this thing <laughs> well that works for me and, I mean you know you've got something there that might work you might as well publish it absolutely so I got connected up with iUniverse and uh, really got my bearings talking to a lady named Kathy Campwith, Campwither Yes. And she kind of like steered me through the whole thing. 
Your book, and, uh, your book theme is is really, uh, although the cover gives uh, a different feel, uh, kind of a formal picture of uh, two adults, a, a male and a female, in a dance move, uh, your book is actually about relationships, isn't it? That's exactly what it's about. What makes a good relationship and uh, how to maintain it. And if you mess up the relationship, it even gets into a little bit of Manuel kind of messed up the relationship. And um, and Angelica kind of like forgave him for everything, and because he she knew how terribly sorry he was for messing it up the way he messed it up, and the they they put the relationship back together and just carried on. In your personal experience, I guess an observational experience as an author, I'm sure you have uh, looked at relationships and. Uh, uh, observed people in those relationships. Uh, what is your feeling about the first things that attracts a person to another? In my well, I can't speak for everybody, but I can tell you it's usually for me a physical attraction. But understanding that physical attraction is only skin deep, I actually sit down with the individual, the lady that I'm interested in, and I start talking about how she views life and where she's going in life and. How she, what you know, what's her plan in life, and I want to know what her what, what her substance is. What because would, to me, to, that that that's a whole lot more important than what you're looking at. You want to know what's in the heart and soul. Now, does Manuel approach his relationships that way, or is he a little more, I guess, uh, tactile in his relationships? Well, that's just that's just that's one of the things about this book was what he did was he just found Angelica. In, in, a, in the street of Huarto, her hometown, and she was literally having the snot knocked out of her by this guy who wanted her back in a relationship. Well, he never, he doesn't know who this woman is, but he never stood for any lady being abused in any way, shape, or form. So he kind of like steps into this fight and protects Angelica, who he has no idea who she is, and in the process, winds up with a good knife gash in the ribs. And mm. he thought, okay, now it's do or die. And he just wails the tar out of this bully. And he goes scampering off. Well, that left Manuel alone with Angelica, with this crowd in the street. And she takes him back to his place and, and, and mends his wounds for him. And the relation goes from there. Where does the story take place? I, I, I see Connecticut and maybe Spain as a possible setting for this. Well, Manuel was born in Connecticut. His father and grandfather came over from Spain. And uh, his father, Manuel's father, died when Manuel was 13. And his father told him about Spain. It, but when when his father did die, he left Manuel a good sum of money that he created himself, that his father created himself. So when he was 21 and going to school, he was going to take a summer off, go to Spain to see what his father was actually talking about over there. And his first day in Spain, he meets Angelica. So, I mean, he, he there's a little bit going on in, in, in Connecticut, but the main part of the story goes on in Huerta, Spain, and then they go to uh, another town, to Yeda, and go to Madrid because there's, they're, they're trying to stay out of trouble with this Jose guy that's trying to interrupt their relationship. 
Have you had uh, travel to Spain personally? I mean, how did you know about these these general uh, geographical locations? Is it something you've read about, or did you actually uh, travel there? No, I've never been to Spain. What I did was when I was getting into involvement with the with the book, I wanted. I mean, a lot of people know a lot of cities in Spain, and I wanted to stay pretty much away from those cities like Madrid and Barcelona and places like that. Mm-hmm. So I so I go to. Um, Google, and I, I brought up a map of Spain, zoomed in on it, and just went to the north of Spain and started and, and started picking out the smaller towns up there. And I thought Puerto would be a pretty cool town to uh, to write, write write the story in. I love the name of the town for sure. Absolutely do. It <laughs> uh, was easy to pronounce. Do you describe? Yes, you you certainly pronounce it well. Do you do you uh, describe the town and its uh, in any detail, or is it just one of those uh, side elements in your story? No, it gets into a little bit of detail. I had to, then I had once once I got to uh, Google Huerta, I, I, I started looking at the what the city actually looks like, and I, there's a scene in the story where Angelica and her brother and mother are at this river that's actually in Huerta, and described that in pretty good detail because I saw a photo of that, and the. Uh, Cathedrals that are in in this town, I we, we, I described one of those pretty well, and there's restaurants that are um, in the story. So no, I've never been to Spain, but I have seen pictures. Well, it's and, that, and, and that's where that and that's where the storyline the, the storyline descriptions come from. Sounds like you have a pretty good handle on Huerta, and uh, <laughs> and the other places in Spain that you've described. Uh, who is your audience for this? Do you think this is so, uh, I, I don't mean to use the word chick in a pejorative way, but is this a, a story that will appeal to chicks, or is this a guy uh, book? Oh, this is definitely not a guy book. This was meant for ladies to be reading. And if it was, and if it does become a movie, it would be a chick flick. Gotcha. You well, know? Well, you, you mentioned romance a couple of times, and uh, you call it My Angel of Angels, and, and uh, you did describe your, your key character as uh, Angelica, so those two things sort of sort of uh, dovetail together. What is the most exciting, or is there an exciting scene in here that's going to grab the reader? Wow, there's going to be, well, probably the knife fight at the beginning, or, or the rumble at the beginning that turns into uh, Manuel being stabbed. Then there's a couple of times that Angelica gets kidnapped, and, and uh, Manuel comes in to swoop her out of there. And there's a scene where he's got to take her literally to the roof of the building of this warehouse and and take her to the roof and then come down another ladder. And the only thing she is wearing is a shirt that she was wearing when she was in his room because he had to go buy her a dress because he got lost in the wash because there was champagne spilled all over it. Mm hmm. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> it gets kind of spicy. A little, little, bit of, little bit of Spanish spice in there. You betcha. All right. Well, now, the thing uh, of it is, I, I, don't, I don't mean to cut you off to you. Sure, that's all right. The thing of it is, 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 I did live in Greece for three years, and while there, I met some people from Spanish countries. And I would discuss, you know, what's your country about and what are the people like and all that sort of stuff. So I'm coming off of, of stories I heard through other people from Spain and Latin Latin countries. Fabulous. In, in introducing this to my, my listeners in a couple of uh, sentences or paragraphs, 
What would you say to them to get them interested in My Angel of Angels? If you like romance and if you like heroic stories, please read my book. It will grab your attention. It will. And take it will you, grab your attention. And take you on a journey. In fact, you can travel by uh, reading your book, I'm assuming, by what you've described. Yeah, I, 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 get into, I believe I get into pretty good detail that you will be able to actually see the scenery that is described in the book. Beautiful. Uh, Jim, were there any challenges that you had to overcome to get this completed other than just getting started and actually deciding to publish it? Any challenges? There were a few. After I went into editing, there were some things that the editors didn't like, and I had to go do a little bit more research and get things worded just so they... I'm sort of rough with my vocabulary occasionally, and they said, no, no, this is going to be offensive. you got to reword this. So I had to reword some things. But other than that, it, this was a very fun story to write. And it was like, it was, it, it, I'm, I am in a lot of the characters, even, even Angelica, there's parts of me and all these things and what I would like in my relationships and how I would like people to treat me and how I would like to treat other people. Everything's a give and take in a relationship. And that's what I tried to write in that relationship. Do I hear a sequel? No, I don't think so. I think, no, <laughs> I, I, that would be tough. You've, you've tapped the well on this particular read, uh, but did you enjoy the process enough that perhaps there might be another adventure in your future? Oh, definitely. Definitely. As a matter of fact, I'm working on a second book right now. Excellent. And I'm, da- and I'm dabbling in a third and fourth, fourth book. We we'll look forward to talking to you about that one. That's released as well. This one is titled My Angel of Angels, author Jim Arnold. Jim, where do we get copies of your book? Well, you can get them on uh, iUniverse.com, GooglePlay.com, and BarnesandNoble.com. Have you started a website as yet, or a fan page? A, web- a website, no, but I do have a blog. You can get there by, you can go, it's at MyAngelOfAngels.WordPress.com. And I just started that like two weeks ago. Super. Super. Okay. My listeners can find you there and also under your name, Jim Arnold. There may be some other authors named Jim Arnold, but this one links to my Angel of Angels. Thank you, sir, for joining me today. Glad to be here. Thanks a lot, Jay. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Helen Wu was born and raised in San Francisco's Chinatown. And after a very difficult upbringing, fighting depression, abuse, and addictions, she finally finds herself genuinely happy inside and out. Helen believes in taking our positive thinking and doing something positive to achieve a positive outcome. She's here to make a positive difference in your life, to be your game changer, your aha moment mentor. She's ready to help both men and women get into a better place. Helen Wu is also the author of Self-Aid Success Stories, 25 Success Stories from Successful Entrepreneurs. Inspired by Ellen DeGeneres, Helen wants the world to know that just because we find ourselves in a difficult situation doesn't mean we have to stay there. We can aid ourselves to a better life. So join us for Self-Aid Success Stories with Helen Wu. Wednesday nights at 10, 9 central on toginet.com. Welcome back 
to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. Greetings for iUniverse. This is J. Douglas Barker. The book is titled Visions of God, a new look at the nature of God as seen by major biblical persons. And the author, Harold Friday, visits me from California in the United States. Welcome, sir, to the program. Thank you. Your book is uh, 134 pages. Uh, we're going to talk about your book. Is this your first book that you've written? Yes, it is. I started writing it at age 87. And why did you choose this this subject material? Why did you decide to write about God? After years of thinking about the problems of life, I decided to put down my analysis of the problems that concern me most and to suggest a direction in which we should search for answers. To think about the problems of life is to invite a discussion of God and the nature of God. So uh, would I assume correctly that you believe in a God or God? I believe in God, yes, but not in the common idea of a powerful, objective being whom people believe answers prayer. I believe in my understanding of God, which is based on my reading of the Bible. Well, let's discuss that uh, in just a moment. What is your view of the most urgent problems that concern you? The immediate problem I address is the continuing exit from the churches of good people who are intelligent and ethical but find no need for creeds and rituals in their lives. Years ago, I joined this group. I left organized religion, but I did not leave my faith and did not lose my desire to find a way to live successfully. A larger problem is the persistence of violence and war in many parts of the world. My high school years coincided with the Second, year, Second World War. I started high school in September 1939. Since the end of that war, conflicts have been constantly occurring around the world. People often react to these conflicts with violence. Many who engage in violence do so because of their belief in God. Some believe that God orders the elimination of people who hold beliefs different from theirs. Others, in conducting war, inflict in, uh, suffering on undeserving people, in spite of the fact they say they believe in a loving God. A problem close to my experience as a trial lawyer who did some criminal defense work is this. When we lock up a young man for minor offenses for a short time, he comes out with all the same problems, plus the serious problem of a criminal record that follows him the rest of his life. This makes finding employment and a place in society very difficult. And when we lock up parents of little children, we disrupt the children's development and put them at a disadvantage, which is very hard to overcome. While we all believe in justice, there is a question whether we administer justice in a way that is fair and productive for each person involved. Uh, you mentioned, in addition to being an author, that you were a trial lawyer or have been involved in, in the uh, law system or the, uh, the system of law. Where uh, there are other life experiences that uh, contributed to your viewpoint? Yes. In my early adult years, I was a preacher, a minister, and a missionary. 
I received a Bachelor of Divinity degree from the University of London. Religion was my life during those early years. Even when I disagree, I do understand the different views of the nature of God found in the various Christian denominations, and to some extent, the ideas in other religions. During the middle part of my life, I was in various businesses. I had experience as a salesman, small business owner, and corporate officer. Good people function at all levels of business without involving religious practices. Possibly religion is part of the personal lives of many. This is not to say that all business people are saints. We know that idea is wrong. But I observe that people who are secular in outlook can function successfully. The last third of my professional life was spent as a trial lawyer and professor in a law college. Lawyers like to think that they have learned to think logically. I hope that this is true of my treatment of the problems just discussed and in the search for answers. Harold, do you believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Do you believe that God writes books? The um, designation of the Bible as the Word of God. Correct. If you say God inspires the human authors, I do not know what you mean. Does that mean there is a guarantee that every word in the Bible is true? If that's what you mean, there's a problem with this idea because we do not have a single original of the books of the Bible. Every ancient scroll was hand-copied and contains differences from every other copy. Which copy shall we call the Word of God? The phrase really is a metaphor and should not be taken literally. If in a time of turmoil a person meditates on the words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, or on some other passage from the Bible, and finds in them a message of comfort and encouragement, he may say, this is the word of God to me, meaning that is a message for his soul. So you do find value in the Bible? Indeed, I do. I believe that one of the tragic results of the exodus from the churches is that people have not only left churches, but they have dispensed with the Bible as well. To do so is, divorce, is to divorce ourselves from ancient wisdom and from the sources of important elements of modern life. Freedom and liberty are enshrined in the Declaration of Independence and the U.S. Constitution. These ideas, as far as written records go, began in a biblical story where Moses demanded, let my people go. The message of justice and mercy is found in the memorable words of the prophet Micah, spoken about 2,500 years ago. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk with humility? We should not abandon such wisdom, inspiration, and guidance as found in the Bible. In a moment, I, I may ask you what your idea is of the nature of God, but uh, first, I want to ask you how you arrived at your current present view. I'm reasonably familiar with the Bible, so I thought I would go through the Bible from the beginning to the end and try to understand what biblical characters thought about the nature of God. I find a progression from a simplistic view of a being like ourselves, although more powerful, 
to a spiritual view that accords with modern knowledge. According to an early story, Adam thought he could walk around with God and talk to him. He even thought he could hide from God. In the case of Abraham, he experienced God in visions and trances, that is, ecstatic episodes. He thought God wanted to bless people, but also believed that God was capable of cursing people. At a later time, Moses believed God wanted men to be free, but also required righteousness as set forth in the commandments. He also thought God would torture and utterly destroy his people if they did not stay true to him. In the story of Jesus, we do not have a definition of God, but we have the statement of one of the gospel writers. Enduring love came through Jesus Christ. Paul added his thoughts on love. He said the best way to serve in the church is not teaching and preaching, but in loving. He said that even if he preached with the voice of an angel, without love he was a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. John, the last writer in the New Testament, except for the book of Revelation, stated that no man has ever seen God. Then he said, God is light, and God is love. Light is a metaphor for truth. From this review of Scripture, I came to my conclusion about the nature of God. I'm going to ask you a question about your belief in the nature of God in a moment. But first, if I'm understanding you, it seems you're rejecting the traditional descriptions of God as uh, been discussed in the creeds and the teachings of church leaders throughout the centuries. Do you uh, personally have a view that they were all wrong? I wouldn't put it that way. Every one of them was a human being acting in the world at his time and thinking in categories familiar to him. Remember, there were large differences among them. The Pope of the 16th century called Martin Luther the Antichrist. Martin Luther called the Pope the Antichrist. Many people are content to believe what they are taught. Many want to think for themselves. I differ from many traditional thinkers, but I do not reject the Bible, and I do not reject the vital experience of the first followers of Jesus. It is my desire, however, to speak in the language of 21st century people then how would you describe God as we have known him or described him in the past? How would you describe him today? Meeting God is an inner experience that does not require external events, things, or beings. Religious practices are not a requirement and may be a hindrance. God should not be literalized. The name is a metaphor for the best wisdom and the highest moral qualities we have so far perceived. Our God is our vision and our ultimate commitment, and our ultimate commitment should be to truth and love. I'm sure you've had some reaction to your book and to your concepts. How do you feel people will respond to this idea? I hope they will uh, respond by following the search for truth wherever the search leads, and accepting the truth, even if it conflicts with beliefs of family, friends, and churches. And by practicing love in all its aspects, such as justice, 
righteousness, mercy, sacrificing for others, and pursuing peace. We should love one another, our neighbors, and even our enemies. True worship is to have a vision of a loving world and to work to make it come true. Each of us should contribute his share of loving service to help reduce the suffering in the world. God is found in loving hearts. Harold, wonderful observations. Thank you for sharing your background story and how this book came together and the contents of Visions of God, a new look at the nature of God as seen by major biblical persons. My guest, Harold Friday. Harold, where can my listeners get a copy of your book? At iUniverse, at Amazon, and at Barnes & Noble. Are you also developing a website that they might be able to access? Yes, we, we have, have it almost completed or um, very near completion. And the, um, the uh, name of the website is haroldwfriday.com. Friday is spelled F-R-Y-D-A-Y. Harold, thanks for visiting with me today and sharing your viewpoint of the visions of God. Thank you again, and hope to hear from you in the future. Thank you. For iUniverse, this is Jay Douglas Barker. iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by TogiNet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.